We're going to be back in the book of John today, but uh, before we do, let me do a couple announcements uh, for you. Intro to Grace is next Sunday at 3.30. So if you're newer to Grace, you've not been through Intro to Grace, it's not only a the first step toward membership, but it's also something I think if you're considering this your church, even if you don't want to become a member for some reason or another, it's a great thing to go through to learn about the church, the ministries, and how you can serve and be part of this church, not just somebody who fills a seat, but God called us to be the church and to serve one another. And that is our job as leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so we want to tell you how that we do that here at Grace Church. So that's at 3.30 next Sunday, and then we'll have the membership class to follow the next week. And so we're back in John chapter 14 as you're turning there. Also want to remind you about K-groups on Sunday and Wednesday. If you're not part of a K-group, you need to be in a K-group. You need to be part of a community. And those who are in a K-group, I hope you'll attend faithfully and consistently. Um, your attendance there is encouraging to others, so you not only benefit, but it encourages other people. I know some of our K-groups have as many as you know 20 or so on the roster, and sometimes we consistently have 10 different people show up every week, and that's not a good thing. So we need to be faithful to our commitment. We need to stick with it and be uh, make it a part of our schedule where it's non-negotiable. So I hope that you'll do that. So we're in John chapter 14, and let's pray before we look into this text today. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, and that we gather here together, not because it's the thing that we're supposed to do on a Sunday morning, but we gather in your name to worship God and to bring glory to him through uh, what you accomplished, Jesus, on the cross, and I thank you for that. And I pray that today you'll wake up our minds and our bodies, that we can engage, uh, we can worship in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that you will help our uh, mind's attention and our heart's affection to be fully and completely devoted to you today and what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to think about the world that we live in today and then consider some of these facts. On March 6th, 1836, the Battle of the Alamo came to an end. Unless you teach history, there's no way you would know that probably. But the news actually didn't reach London until May 17th of the same year. So March to May. Imagine that. It took two months for the news of the Battle of the Alamo coming to an end to travel around the world. The F French invasion of Russia occurred June 24th, 1812, but the news didn't get around the world on that one until the next month, till the middle of July. We live in a day and age where News travels in a matter of instant, I mean, it's seconds, just from one continent to an, another. And the thing is, if you watch the news, I, I've pretty much given up on watching the news. But everything is breaking news, right? Like, I, they interrupt your program. Uh, we're here on the streets of Hong Kong because three people aren't wearing their mask, right? And we're breaking into programs because of breaking news. And everything's spectacular, and, it, and, and everything is elevated, and everything's a disaster, right? And everything at this level, and the news travels instantly. And what does that do to us? It leaves our society, our culture, in this constant state of anxiety, and, and it triggers stress. And it's just the day and age we live in where there's constant noise, instant news, and depression and anxiety are at an all-time high. Well, if you kind of fall into that category, that maybe you watch way too much media, take in way too much, or you just battle constantly like a lot of Americans do with anxiety, then we need the text today. Because living in this world, 
the only way that we can ex experience true and lasting peace and joy is through what Jesus tells us today in his word. In Jesus' farewell address is what this is called, this passage that we're looking at, where he's giving comfort to his disciples. He's helping his disciples for what is ahead. It's, it's going to be a, a brutal 72 hours ahead. And so he's giving them, the immediate context is he's giving them comfort, as I've talked about, but we get this incredible theology, and these words are for us. This was planned for us as well. And so as the Holy Spirit takes this word and gives it to us, then we're able to, to see how we can live with joy in this world that's broken by sin and is scarred by sin. And so some of the things that Jesus has given his disciples and to us so far, last week we looked at the first mention of the believer's union with Christ which is this it's an amazing theology that we have uh, been in, put in Christ, Christ has put in, uh, into us. And verse 20, he, uh, where Jesus mentioned this, he said, In this day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So this, this relationship that exists where Christ in us, we're in Christ, uh, Christ is in God. We illustrated that last week. And we've heard Jesus also tell his disciples, which seems almost just impossible to comprehend, that he tells them, you're going to be better off when I leave. Because why? I'm sending you help. I'm sending you a, the helper, the Holy Spirit, verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. And so the Spirit's presence within us enables us to understand and apply God's word. So when you open your Bible, as Brian talked about, did a great job on the fly, by the way. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, that, that when you open your Bible and you engage with the word, you're praying, you're asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate and show you what he has for you in the text. And so the Spirit's presence, it enables us to understand and apply God's word. And so the 11 disciples, no question, if you can put yourself in their shoes, they definitely needed help. But you know what? We need help. And we need a helper. And we need to know how to experience peace and joy in all the chaos of this world because we need to live for God's glory. And that doesn't come by default. It comes when we are following what Jesus has told us. And so in Jesus, in verse 27, he tells this to his disciples. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus turns and he begins to speak about peace as he's on his way, only hours away from his crucifixion. He'll be temporarily separated from God the Father, and in the garden we see that Jesus was in anguish over this, but he's teaching his disciples about how to have peace even in as he goes through this extreme distress that he goes through in the garden as he's preparing himself. And so he teaches them how that they can know God's peace as he himself is about to experience the brutal realities of the cross. And several times I've mentioned the disciples are enormously, as we can imagine, stressed. And, and imagine their situation that... They, they have walked with God himself for three years. That God's presence, the, the Hebrew word, the, the Shekinah glory of God, that's when God comes to dwell with his people, 
was with the disciples in the form of Jesus, in the person of Jesus Christ. God's presence was with them for the, five, the last three years. And now he tells them he's leaving them. He's going away. But peace, he's teaching them how they can have peace in this situation. He tells them last week, he said, I'm coming back. I'm not going to abandon you like orphans as children. I will come back to you. And he's going to come back to them after the resurrection. But then when he ascends back into heaven, verse 3 and 4 said that he's going to go and prepare a place for them. And he says, "When I, I'm going to come back and take you so that you can come and be where I am also. In verse 3 and 4, he said that. Now he promises to leave them with this supernatural peace that's only available to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27 again, he says, Peace I, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So Jesus will be leaving them with a peace that at this point, there's no way that they can fully and totally comprehend. Why? Because Jesus' mission is not complete at this point. When Jesus' mission is complete on the cross, believers then have, and, and we have, a perfect peace with God the Father when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The disciples at this point were still under the old covenant system, so every year an, an offering, an atonement, would have to be made for their sins. And a human high priest would have to go into the temple and offer a sacrifice on their behalf and the people's behalf. But because of the cross, peace, Jesus will be able to leave this world, but leave peace with them that they can permanently know and permanently experience because God is for them, he's not against them. Because of the cross, our sin debt paid in full, paid completely, Romans 8 says no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So perfect peace with God. And so no matter what Satan tells you, no matter what sin that you struggle with, no matter how angry you get at your situation or how frustrated you get with your lack of self-control, God is for you, not against you, if you're in Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, you place your faith in Jesus, you know him as your Lord and Savior, you're with, at peace with God positionally. He has declared you righteous and holy. And there's no greater thing than to be at peace with God. And we take it for granted. We do. We have to really grab hold of our minds and say, let me really think about this. Let me really just allow this, to, to, this reality to sink down into me. Because most of the days, we're worried about just getting out of the house to get on work on time. Or we're worried about this obligation or that obligation that we're at peace with God sometimes just doesn't hit our radar. And that's why we need time with God before we jump out and start our day. Because then we need to remind ourselves again and again that God is for me, not against me. No matter what happens today, God is for me because of the cross, because of Jesus. He's not against me. But look, the opposite is true. If you're in here today and you're not a believer, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, God is not only not for you, God is against you. You are, Scripture says, you're at war with God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more shall now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So Paul clearly says that we were enemies with God before we were reconciled. We were enemies. We were at war with God. And there's just no true, real peace if you're not at peace with God. Now, Satan offers some counterfeit peace. He does. 
he tells us peace is possible. But you know what? That's nothing new. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells us that there's this counterfeit peace that's available. Look at verse 27 again. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. So there's this claim that they have this route to peace, but their peace is, is counterfeit. It's not real. It's not true. Pastor John MacArthur says it well when he says, peace for the world is just the absence of what troubles them. Humanity would define peace mostly in negative terms, to be without trouble, to be free from conflict, to have no stress. That is how the world defines and searches for peace. Just a lack of conflict. I just need me in my happy place, right? I need to feel good, and I need to just be able to just sit in this moment and just have you out there not bother me, right? And that's the world's view of peace. Graham's going to help me illustrate, because I need this to stick in your mind. So Graham, come up here and help me uh, real quick. Real basic illustration, but something that will help you, hopefully like the box last week, In Christ, Christ in You. Some of you said that really helped me remember it. So hopefully this help you remember not to go for the artificial piece. All right, so Graham, you train a little bit in mixed martial arts, right? All right, so mixed martial arts basically is a lot of different disciplines combined together, boxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, uh, kickboxing, a bunch of different things. So anyway, uh, so what happens in a mixed martial arts contest, which, sorry, some of you are like, that's such a brutal sport. I can't believe our pastor would watch that. It's so terrible. But it, it truly is a sport. And when they're done, a lot of times they bow or they hug. Sometimes they get a little too crazy and hug a lot because they've just like laid it all on the line. But these, they go at each other. They're, they're, they're punched. They punch each other. They, they, all right, so go ahead. I won't punch you. You, you, you punch me because I, I, I'm, yeah, okay. They punch. They kick in the legs. All right, uh, sometimes they do takedowns, all right, double leg, right, double leg takedown, pull me down to the ground. You have all this combat that's going on constantly. But these guys, although they're like perfect conditioned athletes, I mean, these guys are just like the top of the top. They've cut weight. They're in perfect shape for this match. But even the best, sometimes they get tired. And so sometimes they go into what's called a clinch, all right? We're not hugging. This is called a clinch, all right? They're in a clinch. But what happens a lot of times, because they're so tired, they're so wasted, that the guys will just lay on each other trying to get a rest for a bit. And in fact, if they stay in that position for more than a few seconds without some uh, combat taking place, the ref will pull them apart so they'll start uh, fighting and, and striking again. But when you're laying here like this, think about this for a second, all right? This might look like a restful position if you flipped on the TV or you walked in the room, your husband's watching, two guys are like this. You're like, what's going on there, right? What are these guys doing? Are they just resting on each other? But they're in battle, but there's a temporary ceasefire. This guy right here is not going, I think I'll just give him a break. I've been hitting him pretty hard lately, so I'm just going to let him lay on me and rest for a few minutes, right? That's not what's happening. They're resting in the moment in the midst of serious combat that's taking place. And so we know that this is not peace, although it may resemble peace. It may resemble peace, and there may be occasionally they, they might punch, but mostly it's just a restful position. But it's not peace because it's in a bigger picture. Thank you, Graham. A bigger, give him a hand, yeah. It's in a, it, we know that combat is going on between these two athletes. And that's kind of a picture of the world's peace. It's a lack of anything that's going on at the moment that's causing conflict, but there's no deep, real, true, lasting peace. In fact, the Bible, the biblical, the Hebrew word for peace is a word that we just don't have a proper translation for 
in the English because we can't get to this idea of, of shalom. We can't understand that word through one word in English. And, and it's so much more than just the absence of trouble. It means completeness, soundness. It means welfare. It's where a person's life with God and with everything else is ordered with harmony, both spiritually and physically. It's, it's like maybe saying, just all is well with my soul. When you go to a funeral and the family, you see it on their face. It is well with my soul. That's, that's shalom. It's we're okay with what's happened here. And so we need to remember that God is at work in this world, and he is making everything new. He is making all things new in this order, this order that Satan has brought and sin has brought into this world came to an end at the cross. That, that, that Jesus is making all things new again, and it'll be fully realized at the end of this age. So when you feel the effects of just this brokenness of sin, this, this disorder, this disaster, disease, death, pain, etc., you need to remember that the God of peace, he's actively working to make all things new again. He's actively working to make us into the image of Jesus, and he's working, he's going to restore the order that was destroyed by the fall of man and sin in this world. And Paul says it in Romans that the world is groaning, and we're groaning, because we know that the effects of sin have been difficult, and they're tough, and they're, and they're hard to deal with, but Jesus offers peace that doesn't make sense in these situations. So it's a peace that does not depend upon the circumstances of life, but it lives above life. And so Satan, again, has a counterfeit for everything. He lies, he deceives, and in fact, in verse 30, is going to refer to Satan again, the ruler of this world, and he promotes that, that we can have peace apart from God. And, and, and I think the, the flavor of the day in our age, in this age, it's just be, be true to yourself. All right, you've heard people say that or some form of that. Just, just be true to yourself. And that's how you find peace. And, you know, and truthfully, you just see through that. It's the same thing that God called out way back in Judges where he said everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right, so when you hear that and when you think those thoughts, I just need to be true to me. I need to be true to myself. Just know that that's the same thing that God said. Everyone wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. Being true yourself, it just does not provide peace. It doesn't work. And, and, and the world knows that this doesn't work. There's no peace that you can have within yourself. And so the world then turns to begin to blame other people. Culture, society, particularly organized religion, they get blamed. So all these external things, I can't have peace because you don't accept me. You don't uh, approve of me. You don't say my sin and the way I'm living is okay. And so then it begins to be the case where this pressure is put on society. Just accept everybody. Whatever they want to do, whatever feels right to them in their own eyes, just accept them. Back when I was uh, right out of college, I majored in psychology in my undergraduate. And right out of college, I got a job at a place called Johnson Mental Health Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I began to work on my master's degree at University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, I, I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychiatrist, or psychologist, I'm sorry. And during that time, uh, I learned a lot that I didn't learn in the classroom, but uh, some of you may know what the DSM manual is. And the DSM, there's a, a new version of it 
uh, every you know, 10, 15 years comes out, and it, it's a diagnostic tool to determine one's mental state, mental illness, and classify mental illness. And what I noticed with the DSM, when I was around in that area, it was a DSM-3, and there was this major shift that happened, if you go back and study, like the DSM-1, DSM-2, that what happened was the emphasis began to be not placed on the individual and what their identity struggle was, but it was more on the distress associated with that identity. So follow me here. The, the identity is not the issue. It's the distress from not being accepted that's the issue. And, and so the world realized, hey, there's no peace in just, I'm just going to be me. No, it has to be external. You have to accept me for who I am and not just accept me, but celebrate me for being true to who I am. But there's no peace in that. It's counterfeit peace. It's a temporary rest in the midst of a battle because God is the one that defines peace. He's the giver of peace. Only Jesus provides peace. He gives it and we must receive it. He says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. So true peace comes from the outside. It comes from God. It can't come from you and it doesn't come from society. And so we need to remember that when we are tempted to run after counterfeit peace, that it doesn't, even as believers, there's no good end to this because we have to follow God's law, not what our human minds think or even what our culture says or our laws say that this should be the case or not the case or this should be accepted or not accepted. God's revelation is through his character, and that's for all people. Romans one thirty two says, Though they knew God's righteous decree, that those who practice such a thing deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So the, the, in Romans 1, if you follow the chapter, it's just this spiral downward where it's, I'm just me being me, and you need to accept me for being who I am, and you need to celebrate me for who I am. And there's no godliness in that. It's anti-God. It's from the devil to believe that lie. And it's worked its way in so many different ways. We Today, we, we recognize the sanctity of human life. Did you know that 81% of women who have abortions uh, admit to being extremely depressed and experiencing great anxiety after the abortion? And, you know, it's easy to blame other people, right? It's like, why doesn't the world accept it? But the truth is, it's not about that. It's about that it, you're breaking God's law. God is the one that's the giver of life. And abortions right activists, and I've seen this over my time. Back when I was in high school, the argument was, uh, you know, it's not a life. It, you know, there, it's not a life. It's just part of you. It's part of your body. But as science has developed and as ultrasounds and sonograms and those thing, kind of things have come about, even those who are for abortion realize that that argument doesn't work. Scientists showed us the truth. It, it, if the unborn is a human being, which science clearly shows that it is, the state has a legitimate right in protecting a child's right, a baby's rights. So what's the argument today? The argument today is the state's protection of life cannot come at the expense of the woman's autonomy. It's basically saying, it's my body, don't tell me what to do with my body, right? And it's another form of it, I'm, I'm doing what's right for me, right? I, if it, I'm being true to myself. I need to make the decision that's true for me. 
And so the world's peace, saying that there's any peace that you can obtain by having that mindset, will never, ever, ever provide any kind of lasting peace. It's a temporary peace to to kind of convince yourself or accept me, celebrate me. It doesn't work. Jesus is the giver of peace. He knows about peace, and he is about to experience the most extreme torture and die by the most painful death known to mankind at that time. And here he is lecturing and teaching on peace. Jesus knows peace. He's the prince of peace. And so he's able to tell his little disciples, his flock, here he says in verse 27, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. So, so follow here. Jesus said, I give you peace. I leave you peace. I give you peace. And now he gives them a command. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So he says, don't let your heart just run wild with fear. Don't allow that to happen. And so as we're in Christ and we're walking in Christ and Christ has given us his peace, then we have a responsibility to apply that peace, to appropriate that peace into our life, to take God's word, to take the graces he's given to us, and we apply those things. This is not just me just set back and then God just pours his peace on me and I just sit here and absorb it. There's an action that we do. We, we let not our hearts be troubled. One time I illustrated it by saying that if I brought a treadmill in here and laid the treadmill here and I said, okay, get in shape, you don't look at the treadmill and decide, like, okay, if I just watch it run, then I'll be in shape. You have to get on there and start engaging in the treadmill. And so God says, I've given you everything you need for a life of godliness. Now, get to busy. Get doing it. Work. Add to your salvation. And he gives a list in Second Peter of the things we add to our salvation. And as pointed out earlier, it's not just by grit and determination and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's through the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to show you a chart here. Just the, the world's definition of peace kind of put into just a list and then Jesus's peace that he gives. So the world's peace, it's dependent on feeling. It's all about how you feel as the individual. It allows for no trouble whatsoever, right? No conflict. It can't be peace if there's conflict. It tries to control the situations. Its focus is totally upon self, the be true to me. If I, I find peace, I will feel peace if I'm true to myself and what I think is reality. And then it ultimately always fails. The peace Jesus gives is dependent upon trust. We look into God's word. We see God's word. We see what God says. And we trust his word. And it allows for troubles. Troubles are part of being alive. God even ordains troubles. He ordains suffering, as Brian said earlier. He gives those things into our life for a reason. And oftentimes, we never know why. And we may never, ever know until we see him in eternity and he explains it all to us. But he allows troubles for our good. And we have to trust God to control. We can't control it. It's God's to control. And the focus has to be on Jesus, not on ourselves. We don't focus on us. We focus on him. And we ultimately are able to endure, if not in this lifetime, definitely by the next, that we know that everything's going to be okay because God is God and we're not Verse 28, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. He's he's reiterating, I've told you this, I I will come to you. If you love me, 
you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So just to paraphrase what Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you love me, you'd be really happy that I'm going to the Father. He's greater than I am. I'm going back home, so to speak. And so you think about the disciples, their emotions, which are understandable. Their emotions have been very self-centered. Jesus, how will we ever do this without you being here? How can we handle it? And he's assured them, but Jesus is leaving, and he's going to his own home after his mission is complete. But all they've been able to think about is themselves. So he says, if you love me, you would rejoice. You're going to be happy because I'm going back to my Father. Now, I think we need to pause here just for a second, just because you may look at it where, where Jesus said, because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. What's he talking about there? Because we thought we, you know, we, we teach, we, we know the Trinity, we know that in our minds that Jesus is God, right? The Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. Three in one. So why does he say that the Father is greater than I? Well, a couple different explanations there. The Father in his glory is greater than the Son in his incarnate or human state, so to speak, on earth. So God became human. So in this context, Jesus is saying that he anticipates his departure precisely because it means that he'll return to his full glory in heaven. All right, so that's one option. Another one, and it could be both of these or it could be several other things. He's also, we've seen Jesus throughout his ministry and throughout his life say, I only do what I see the Father doing. The Father tells me to do something, I respond. Is that because God is more important than him and so he tells Jesus what to do because he's more valuable than Jesus? No, it's their position. It's in the Godhead, God the Father, he is the one who's telling Jesus, the Son, how to live his life as an example for us and, and giving order in the Godhead. And so he is greater in authority or leadership than the Son. And so Jesus, as he's telling them this, he's saying, I'm going home to be with the Father. I'm going home to the glory that I once knew. And, and we know from Philippians that Jesus said, or the scripture says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels and that he uh, left his throne and came down to earth. So it's this picture that Jesus, in his humili humiliation, came to be part of humanity. And so I think that's what it's getting at there. So verse 29, Jesus assures them again that his arrest and his crucifixion are all part of his Father's plan. All a part of his Father's plan. Look at verse 29. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe me. So he's saying, I, I've told you what's about to happen. He wants them to, to trust. He knows that this is going to be so difficult. And he tells even to the details of his arrest and crucifixion and, and Judas leaving to go and betray him. He's building their faith. And, and he is, this shows just proof that Jesus is God because he knew the future. He knew what was to, uh, about to happen to him. And it also shows us that God sometimes, or oftentimes even, puts us in situations that are very difficult as Jesus. He, the God's will was to, to suffer and die. His will was to go through all of this. And so let's make sure that the next time that we go through a difficult time, that we don't get angry at God or mad at God, but we pray to God and cry out to God, God, show me what you're doing. And if you don't even reveal the mystery behind this, God, I still accept the fact that you're in control and I know that you're wise and you're good and you know what you're doing. And then again, verse 30 and 31, 
He reiterates again that his arrest and his crucifixion are all part of God's plan. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So we know at this point that Scripture, this, uh, Jesus told us that Satan had already entered into Judas. Judas, even at this moment, was on his way arranging the rest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, in spite of all this, he's got this supernatural peace on display for his disciples. And he's saying, I'm obeying my Father. Even though it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be tough, and it's going to be painful, I'm obeying my Father because I trust the Father. Verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. How does the world know? When we obey God, they know that we love God. When we're hypocrites, when we're doing our own things, how often do we hear, like, like I, I can't buy into Christianity, I can't buy into faith, I can't believe all that stuff because Christians are so unloving and they're so intolerant and they're so hateful and all this stuff the world shows, throws at us. What we do is we love the Father and we obey the Father. And Jesus talked about this. We looked at it last week. And we do what he wants us to do. And that is proof. Our love for him, our love for one another proves that we're his disciple. And, and one, another thing we gather from this verse, which is evident and clear throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. One, Satan's not responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. And you remember back a few years when the Passion of the Christ movie, maybe some of you remember that came out and it was like the, the Jewish people were crying and saying, you know, we're getting blamed for the death of Jesus. It was the Romans who were the one that crucified him. Who crucified Jesus? Well, Scripture makes it clear that God is the one that's ultimately responsible for crucifying Jesus. In Romans chapter 8 again, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him gloriously give us all things? So Jesus was going to the cross. The ruler of the world was coming. Judas was going to betray him. He's going to suffer and die. Yet he's sitting here talking to his disciples about peace. So don't you think Jesus is more than qualified to be trusted when it comes to your situation and what you're going through? The final part of the verse, rise, he tells his disciples, let's go from here. Whether chapters 15 through 17 were spoken as they walked to Gethsemane or as they kind of got up and began to go out, we're not sure, but they were headed to the garden, and we know, many of us know what happened in the garden. So time is short, yet he says, it's going to be okay. And that's what I want our head application to be today, is if you're in Christ, you need to remind yourself again and again, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay in the end. Now, look, this isn't a guarantee that will make all your anxieties go away. But God promises to give us comfort and strength and hope in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances. He does. This morning, 7 o'clock, I got a call from Willow Ridge where my dad is, and they said, your dad appears to be having a heart attack. Uh, I think we should put him in, call the 911, get him to the hospital. And I was like, absolutely. So um, he was taken by ambulance to the hospital, and I drove over to the ER and went in, and he's actually doing fairly good. It looked like actually he may have had a TI, um, a little stroke, mini stroke. And uh, as I was talking to him, 
his faith was just so strong. He said, you know, John, I know where I'm going if I die. He says, I, I, I know God's in control. He said, and, and there was zero, zero fear or concern in his face. Even as the doctor came in and was like, uh, do you have a DNR? Do not resuscitate. Uh, you know, and he's talking to me about that right in front of my dad. But again, my dad just, there was no fear. No fear of death at all. How does that happen? Look, I've been at the bedside of people who have died who were scared to death, and you maybe have too. Those who weren't sure about their faith or weren't sure exactly what the future was going to hold. Those who were uncertain because of, did, did I put my faith in Jesus because my life sure didn't show evidence of that. And they wondered if, you know, is, can I muster up my faith at this moment? And those were the thoughts that are going through their mind on their bed, on their bed in the hospital room as they're getting ready to die. My dad, although he, it clearly looks like he's going to make it and maybe you can get out of the hospital today, there was no fear in the, those moments because he knows and he knows and he knows that he puts his trust in Christ, his faith is in Christ, and everything will ultimately be okay. A heart. Don't focus when those anxieties come flooding in on you. Don't focus on relieving the anxieties. Focus on God's glory and allow him to console you. Psalm 94.19 says, When anxieties were great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Wow. God's peace is where we find the ultimate, durable, lasting peace is found through him and him alone. That's where peace is found. It's not found in trying to come up with solutions to your anxiety. Now, there's some good techniques and things that we can do. I do some of these things, and you probably do too. But we are to do everything for God's glory. The goal for us is God's glory, not so I can get to this place where I can be free from every anxiety that exists. Just, I want to be in this place where I just feel no stress. That's not the goal. The goal is God's glory. And some of you who do sermon follow-up, that's a great question to discuss. Because so many times we center it back on us and we focus on just relieving the anxiety rather than God. What are you doing in this? And casting those cares upon God and giving God those cares that we're dealing with. And then the hands application. Here's what I want you to do. It's very practical. Find a mature Christian and ask him or her, how have you grown in your trust of the Lord? You want to know how to deal with anxieties and stress? Ask somebody who's been around for a while. Ask them, tell me, teach me what God has been showing you in your life. Because they definitely would probably, if they're honest, admit they're not free of anxieties or stress for sure, and they may struggle with it. But as they've walked with Jesus all these years, there's just something different about the way they view it. Just like my dad, 87 years old, walked with God for a long time. And he can sit there with confidence and say, I'm ready to meet Jesus if this is the time. That's faith in Christ. That's trusting. It's not denial of the circumstances. He knows where he's at. He's hooked up. But he knows what really truly matters because he's come to the peace of God. He's known the peace of God, and he knows the peace of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who came and suffered and died on our behalf so we could have peace with you, God. And I, I think sometimes we focus so much on the eternal life, we forget 
that salvation ultimately was about you being for us and not against us, that you accepting us, that we can boldly enter into your presence now because of Jesus and him taking on the punishment for our sin. And God, I pray that we will walk in that, that we'll apply those truths to our lives, God, that we will live in a way that when anxiety and stress come at us, that we remember the truth of the words of Jesus. Peace I give you. Peace I leave with you. And God, help us to take hold of that and run with that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.